hope you guys are having a good week. It's always good to connect midweek with everything going on and uh, <clears throat> see faces and have fun conversations and, and um, study. Um, the back of your bulletin, I want to draw your attention to a good friend of mine, Wes Tucker. Is Wes here tonight? No, he's a pagan. Never mind, I'm not even going to say anything. No, Wes is a very good friend of mine. Um, Wes and Gerti Tucker, uh, they were missionaries in uh, northern France uh, to, to uh, Muslims for 15 years. They've been here, I think, about that same amount of time. And Wes is a guy who he's this very um, kind, gentle, if you know Wes, loving person. He, he's, not, he's not aggressive in any way, and, but he has a deep heart to, to reach people for Jesus. And he does it in a winsome way. He doesn't, he's not one of these guys who's sort of like a street preacher in your face kind of thing. And um, he's going to be, <clears throat> he's teaching a class uh, this last year. He's had to shift because of things being shut down and found this amazing way to continue to reach out to people um, online th- through these new venues that, and avenues that have been created. You know, the, you know, he says you can do it kind of in your Winnie the Pooh pajamas on your couch. And these people are just dying. Man, I just want to talk to a Westerner. And so he's, he, he's teaching a class on here's how you can engage in this call that's on all of us to share the message of Jesus, but in a way that's maybe not quite as intimidating. And so he's starting a class. It's a three-week class. It's called Evangelism for Sissies, which is a great name. I love that name. Um, w- would encourage you to take a look at that. That's starting this Sunday um, at 10 o'clock, and the details are on there. So we're in this series um, looking at sacred pathways and what we're meaning by that are ways that that people historically, both in Scripture, um, throughout church history, how people have tended to best connect, serve, worship God. And we've we've started with this uh, presupposition that every one of us is hardwired differently by God. And so God actually invites unique forms of connection, just like a parent would to having different children in their household. They, they, they would want them to relate the way they're made, not necessarily the way someone else is made. And so this is kind of giving permission for us to say, what would it look like for me to, to be informed about the way that I am and be informed about the way that God is calling me, is wooing me to himself and how he wants me to respond. So <clears throat> last week we looked at, um, or the first week we, we talked about the naturalist pathway. This person, man, I feel close to God when I'm out in nature. Um, we looked at the contemplative pathway. This person, man, thinking of myself as the beloved of God and just meditating on that, that's when I feel closest to him or whatever activities help me wrap my heart and mind around that. Next week, we're going to be looking at, we're combining, we're looking at sensates, which are the people, man, I want to experience God with my five senses. I, I want them fully active. And the ascetic, this is the person who's saying, I want actually kind of the opposite of that. I want, I want simplicity. I want solitude. So kind of the two opposite extremes we'll be looking at that next week. Tonight, we're looking at the activist pathway. And you have in your bullets, I would encourage you to do this each week, there's, a, there's a, a brief assessment in there about is would I rank high on this particular spiritual pathway um, or not? And so hopefully you're doing that and you're kind of discovering slowly as we go, oh, I'm, I'm kind of starting to see my unique spiritual profile and how I best can lean into and be intentional about my relationship with God and pursuing <clears throat> Him. So the activist pathway, Christians who, who score high on this pathway, pathway these, these are believers who their hearts most open up to God when they pick up a cause. They pick up some cause um, on behalf of God. It could be uh, an evangelistic uh, campaign in some way. It, it, it could be picketing. To, to end or push back against some injustice. Could be gathering petitions for, for something that's going on in the government. But f- for them, an activist, oftentimes going to church, it feels like a pit stop <laughs> so that they can get back to the real work of what it is they're, they're doing. They come to church oftentimes and their goal is, uh, man, I want to gather volunteers. I want to get signatures for this petition. That's why I show up. 
at church. It's just to get re-energized. It's to get more people into what it is that God is calling me to deeply pursue. Because when they're engaged in a battle on behalf of God, that's when God seems closest to them. They're most dependent. When they take a risk, man, I'm stepping out. I'm going to do an open-air preaching. I remember a few years back at CSU campus, I was asked to come there and do kind of some open-air preaching. And that's not my bag. Like, that's not my thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And man, I was nervous as a cat. You know, I'm just kind of, I'm like, oh, someone's going to get angry. They're going to have, you know, arguments. And that, which I'm okay with some confrontation, but I just never done it. And it was one of my first experiences of leaning into the activist pathway out there in the free space area. And we see lots of examples uh, in the Old Testament. You know, guys like Moses and Elijah, and we see them taking up um, activist pathway because they step into and lean into causes where they see injustice. Remember, Moses' whole kind of ministry gets launched by him doing it in a really poor way, right? He sees this Egyptian um, slave owner or uh, taskmaster, and he's, he's, he's abusing a fellow Hebrew, and so Moses steps in and kills the guy, right? And then he has to flee. So oftentimes, when I speak to activists, when they speak about their early life, if, when they were less mature, they're like ashamed of, of stuff they've done. They're like, man, I remember I did this, and it was just, it was too harsh, or I did this. And so many activists will say, man, early on in my life, before there was much maturity, I blush at some of the things I said some of the things they did, but as they mature, they learn the subtleties of how to, be, how to lean into this pathway and say, this is a good thing, as it's done in a proper and biblical way. So let's do this. Each week, we've been trying to kind of lay some, I always want to spend some time laying some theological groundwork for these. And so um, I want to look at what's the theological grounding that whether an activist knows it or not, this, this should be motivating them as they step into it. And let me start by asking this question. This is what an activist would ask you. Do you hate evil? And don't be quick to answer. Think about it. Do you hate, that's a very strong word there, do you hate evil? See, much of humanity, historically, has not hated evil. As followers of Jesus, I would submit to you, you must hate, capital H, capital A, capital T, capital E, you must hate evil. Actually, at the, at the core of the Bible is the hatred of evil. In fact, you realize it's the only thing we're commanded to hate in Scripture by our God is evil. So much so that one psalm we're going to look at tonight, Psalm 97, it actually equates, if you love God, you have to hate evil. And it says these two things are attached at the hip. Loving God means, necessitates hating evil. In fact, if you look at, uh, look at this verse right here, Psalm 97 and verse 10, um, here's the passage. We're going to look at it in context, but you, is that large enough? Can you see that Okay. Um, it says, you who love Yahweh hate, here's the imperative, hate evil. Um, you have to realize that the notion of hating evil is revolutionary. Historically speaking, most world religions didn't have a morality component. What I mean is your, your religion was this thing, Whatever you thought was right and wrong was this thing, but the two were separate fields, so to speak, separate disciplines, separate trains of thought. Morality didn't necessarily come out of a religious worldview. And most religions do not have the hating of evil at the, near the heart of its worldview. Just think about Eastern philosophy, Eastern religions. The highest goal is to uh, attain nirvana, enlightenment. If you're a Hindu, that means to be sort of absorbed into the one whole uh, if, if you're a Buddhist, it's sort of the extinction of the ego, the extinction of the self. But the goal is that through, through uh, facing the ego, that's the goal, not to combat evil. That is not the goal to combat and overcome evil with good. That is not the goal in any way. It's not to transform it, it's to escape from it. If you look at... Um, 
much of the Muslim fundamentalist world today. Shame and honor, or saving face, that's what determines if something is good or evil, not a standard of good and evil. That's why an honor killing of maybe a daughter or a sister, if they have been accused of, of, of doing something, usually some sort of a uh, sexual crime in some way, this is why an honor killing can be thought of as heroic and not evil. Because what determines good and evil? It's shame and honor. It's not an absolute standard of good and evil. And according to the Bible, here's the thing. There is a spiritual reality behind much of the proliferation of evil. There's stuff going on behind the scenes, according to Scripture, and this takes us into this, this supernatural worldview of the Bible. And Psalm 97 is one of these key passages that explains the connection and lets us know you have to realize more is going on here than you're aware of and thinking about. So Psalm 97, the one in which we just read, at the center of the, it's sort of at the climax of the psalm, it says, you who love Yahweh hate evil. But I want you to look at the ideas he's tying together and the dots he's connecting, the author, as we go. So let's read through this psalm. The focus of the psalm is how God reigns and rules, and it's contrasting it with, there are some others who are reigning and ruling, and you're going to see it differently. And the ones who are following Yahweh's way of reigning and ruling, their lives, and the ones who are following these other authorities and powers and their lives. So let's take a look at this, at this passage here. We read this, Yahweh is king, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands, which is a way of just saying all of the earth, be glad. Cloud and thick darkness are surrounding him. Look at this key phrase here. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his what? His throne. They're the foundation. This is a way of saying the way that God rules and cares for, it's built on the foundation of justice and righteousness. The way that God is going to meet out his rule, it's going to be on the basis of a standard that doesn't change, justice and righteousness. It says, fire goes before him and devours his enemies round about. His lightning lights the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax in the presence of Yahweh. At the presence of the Lord, all the earth at the presence of the Lord of all the earth. So he owns it all. The heavens declare his, what again? Same thing, that's the foundation of how he rules, his righteousness, his justice. All the peoples see his glory. And then, and then here's the contrast. Here's the other power that rules. Let all who serve an image be ashamed. He's using three words that are synonymous for each other. Those who boast about idols, and then the command, Worship him, who? You gods. Okay. If, if, if you remember, we've talked before in the past about the supernatural worldview of the Bible, that after Babel, God disinherits the nations and says, you don't want me, fine, and he assigns different sons of God, these divine beings, to them, not for them to be worshipped, but to, to, to rule them justly, to take care of them, to be a placeholder until Yahweh one day calls him back, and no one quite knows what the plan is for that, when it'll happen. But we also saw, and we'll look at it in a minute, at some point, these divine beings rebelled. And so they are corrupting the people. And that's what he's contrasting here. He's saying, you, you supernatural beings, you should be worshiping Yahweh. But instead, look, what you're, look at the word there. You want to be served. You want to be in the place of Yahweh. You want the peoples to serve you. You want them to worship. You're, you're, you're inappropriately taking worship, and so you are disqualified. Let all those who serve that image, the idols, but no, those gods, they should be worshiping Yahweh. And then verse 8, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because your judgments, oh Yahweh, they're, remember they're based on justice. <laughs> um, he's not about corrupting humanity like these uh, rebellious divine beings. For you, O Yahweh, are the most high, that's connected to 
uh, Deuteronomy 32, when he, he's the most high God of all of these lesser beings. You are the most high over all the earth. You are highly exalted above all those other gods, these rebellious divine beings who were created by him. You who love Yahweh, here we go, hate evil. To serve Yahweh means you hate evil. And he's contrasting it with those who serve these other beings. He protects the lives of his faithful. He delivers them from, here's the opposite of the faithful, the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Be glad in Yahweh, you righteous. Give thanks to his name. So do you see what he, he's contrasting the upright of heart and the wicked, but more importantly, he's contrasting Yahweh's rule and how Yahweh judges and how, how the corrupt gods of the nation judge. And he's saying when, when, when wickedness and injustice and evil is being proliferated, there's more going on than just a person responsible for it. There's supernatural forces, intelligent ones, behind it who, who, who are ramping it up. Um, we see this even more clearly. Um, and actually, let me, you know, lest you think this sort of command of, you know, hate evil, oh, that's, that, that must be kind of an Old Testament God's angry thing. No. Uh, Paul actually fully embraces this, picks up on it. Romans chapter uh, 12, verse 9 Paul writes these words to the church in Rome. He says, let love be genuine, but abhor what is evil. Hate it. Despise it. Hold fast to what is good. Now, why this strong language? Why does Paul have this strong language? Why does the psalmist have this strong language? Why is this continually brought up? It's because evil is it's cancerous to image bearers of God. Evil is corrosive to humans. It's corrosive to his image bearers. Now, again, this is made even more clear, and I know we've looked at this, so we won't spend a lot of time on it. We'll just kind of go through it real quickly. Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is God pronouncing judgment on the rebellious sons of God, these divine beings who have rebelled, who he assigned to the nations. They became corrupt, and they corrupted the nations. And so God says, all right, I'm going to have judgment on you someday. And so the psalmist says, Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council, all of the other spiritual beings. In the midst of the gods, the, the Elohim, he holds judgment. And look what he says to him. He's pronouncing judgment on them. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Because remember, they've been given responsibility to the nations, but they've perverted it. They've corrupted it. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's the same phrase we came across in the last psalm we looked at, the hand of the wicked. So there's a connection there between the hand of the wicked, those who are devising evil, and these supernatural forces behind the scenes somehow. Whatever this cosmic geography is that, that we don't have access to, but God says it's there and it's active. Um, verse 5, he says, they neither, this is speaking of the people who, who are supposed to be ruled justly, they neither have knowledge nor understanding. You know any cultures like that? They walk about in darkness. Does that describe any cultures ever? All the foundations of the earth are shaking. It's a way of saying like everything, the way God designed it, it's just, it's it's broken. It's falling apart. And then we come back. This is God speaking to the rebellious uh, sons of God. He says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High. Remember, that's him. All of you. But news for you, you're going to die just like you're a common, mortal human being. And then the psalmist ends by saying, arise, O God, judge of the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Meaning all the ones that you let go at Babel, you're going to bring them back home. You want them. It's not just the Hebrews that you want. You're going to call back all peoples. So this has direct implication onto evangelism, right? God calling back the nations. Yahweh one day 
will inherit or reclaim the nations. And then once again, the point of this passage is they will be ruled justly. <laughs> okay, you with me? This is the foundation for it. Should we pursue justice? Should we care about the needy and the destitute and the orphan? Yeah, deeply. That's what these divine sons of God were tasked to do, and they rebelled. They failed that task. They, they failed that purpose. And so God has said, I'm calling you to do that. I'm asking you to step into that game as I'm reclaiming the nations. I'm partnering with you to do that and to bring justice. So evangelism, sharing the gospel, is as important as seeking justice. And the activist is like, well, yeah, of course, duh. <laughs> they're, they're just as important because it's caring for God's imagers who have been exploited. And an activist, man, they, they just think about that. And, and, and the energy is boiling up in them. I got to go do something. I got to do something about that. So that's sort of the, the groundwork, the kind of the theological basis for this idea of this is something we're called, all of us, into. Though certainly some people will have this as their spiritual pathway, and I think it'll be stronger than others of us. So the, the activist pathway, it's informed by a couple different things. Number one, we're to hate evil. Number two, as God's imagers in the world, we are to then work against the proliferation of evil and to promote the good, to seek the good. Um, and then number three, because doing so brings about the flourishing of other imagers of God. And that last piece can never be lost. And I, if, if you're an activist, hear me really carefully. That, that, that third piece, I suggest you camp on. Don't, don't forget that. Because what should be motivating you, if you're an activist, is ultimately fulfilling the two greatest commandments. Remember what they are. Jesus was asked, what are the top two? Well, he's asked, what's the top one? And he says, I'll give you one, I'll throw in another for free. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second he says, it's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the activist has to always keep this in mind. As I'm pursuing taking up a cause for God, whatever it might be, a petition, a picketing, a you know, writing, or uh, you know, whatever it might be. And there's positive side of that too. You know, maybe it's running for an office. Whatever. The motivation should be love of God and love of neighbor. Because here's, here's one danger with the activist. This is true with any activist, whether Christian or non. You can believe your cause to be so noble and so good that it justifies you using any means to pursue it. You know what I mean by that? You might even think, I, I'm not even really bound by the laws of, of being civil and kind because it's so important, it's so noble. It, it justifies any means. And I don't know about you, but I, I've seen lots of damaging things done in that vein right there. But that's the reason why the Christian church has often led the way in societal reforms, um, acting out on issues like abortion, racism, AIDS, human trafficking, sexual slavery, child pornography, and on and on and on. The activist doesn't mind confrontation. I was talking to, um, I'm going to mention her here, here in a little bit, Pastor Carrie Stewart. Many of you will know her. She's our pastor of our missions department, and she's like, she's like a 30 out of 30 on this activist assessment. I mean, that's like, that's, that's her area, you know, big time, and um, I was asking her this week. I sat down with her. I just asked her question, like, help me understand someone who's like a 30 out of 30 on this, and I said, so, so you like confrontation? She goes, no, but I'm not scared of it. I said, oh, okay, so the activist isn't scared of the confrontation. And, and, and here's what the activist would, I think, say to those of us who it's not real high as a correction. They would say this, hey, if your number one goal as a Christian is to be liked by everybody, uh, you're not gonna be able to be faithful to God at some point or another. Listen to these words. Jesus' kind of shocking words. He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Isn't that an interesting statement? Woe to you when everyone is your fan. <laughs> Why is that? 
Because if you're about God and his kingdom, there are individuals who are diametrically opposed to that by their choice. And at a certain point, if, if Jesus put it this way, if the world hated me, guess what? Ipso facto, you're not, not everyone is going to speak well of you. If they do, there's a problem. You, you might be more like a chameleon than like a Christian. And so we have to, I have to be willing to crucify my desire to be liked by everyone. So, um, anyone here a fan of the show The Office? It's so good. It's so good. You have to watch it. Michael Scott, you know who Michael Scott is? He's the manager in The Office, and he's a super insecure, sort of like needs everyone to like him kind of thing. And, and there's this great scene in one of the seasons where he's, he's being interviewed after one of these scenarios where he, and, and he always gets in trouble because like he wants people to like him, but he's insecure and just, you know, things go to pot. And, uh, and so he's, at, he's, he's being interviewed. He goes, um, he goes do, I, do I need to be liked? He goes, absolutely not. I mean, do I want to be liked? Do I like, to, I mean, I like to be liked. I, I want to be liked. I need to be liked. But my, my need to be liked, it's, it's not a compulsion, you know, like my need to be praised. <laughs> it's just great because he's this deeply insecure guy and, and every time I think about that I think about sometimes we as Christians fall into that sort of like I need to be liked like it's, and it is a compulsion and we're actually unaware of it so here's the next question how is it historically that people who have leaned into activism what have they done what's, what's the way of the activist let me give you a couple different categories in which the activist has exercised this spiritual pathway, and then some dangers and some temptations of the activist. So the first way of, or I guess you could say mode of activism, is literature or writing. Now that might not sound very active to you, but it's played a significant role in advancing God's work in the world. I think about uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, you know, he's the one who uh, as a monk in the Roman Catholic Church, had these objections to things that he viewed were, were um, theologically heretical, damaging to people. And so he wrote out these, what's called the 95 Theses, or 95 Objections, things that he said, I want to have an argument with the church authority over these 95 things, and he nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, as a way of protest, of saying this isn't Right. Um, Charles Wesley, he said that God set before him his entire life early on, I think he was in his 20s, he said, God gave me three words, preach and print. And so Charles Wesley, this famous preacher, he preached typically two to three times a day, and every single week he had something ready to go on the printing press, these pamphlets and those sorts of things. There's a strong tradition of pamphleteering and publishing that confronts the failures both inside the church and outside the church. Uh, There's an author by the name of Dr. Uh, Klaus Bachmuehl. He wrote a, he wrote a small but uh, seminal book entitled Books, God's Tool in the History of Salvation. In it, he tells the story of when, when Abraham Lincoln um, married, uh, met uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. She's the one who wrote uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know? And um, when, when he met uh, her, he said, so this is the, the little woman who started the war. He's talking about the Civil War, right? He recognized your ideas, st- it was pushback. It was activism against a great evil in their culture. Uh, in the 19th century, Charles Dickens, he, he pled the case of the London orphan in his writings, in his novels. We see Leo Tolstoy, he, he, he passionately portrayed the role of the downtrodden, the ones who just get missed in life. There's, so, there's no uh, you know, network for them, there's nothing that can help them, and it's helped to change people's ideas. Richard Wright, he wrote a novel called Black Boy, in, and this is in the 20th century, and it opened up the eyes to, to people of the difficulties of growing up as a minority in rural Mississippi. There have been authors who, who have taken up the role of activism in their writing, in, different, in novels sometimes, in so many different ways. Another form of activism is working for social reform. John Wesley, the famous Christian minister, he wrote this. He says, there's no holiness but social holiness. 
meaning it's not about you just, I'm going to go in my room and hang out in my closet and be holy. <laughs> he goes, no, holiness looks like this, like it bleeds out. And he says, and to turn Christianity into a solitary religion, I mean, it's me and Jesus and that's all, he goes, it'll destroy Christianity. Charles Finney, revivalist, he was famous for, um, <clears throat> he refused to baptize Christians who supported slavery. William Wilberforce worked within the uh, England Parliament to, to get the slave trade outlawed. So people have gone about it different ways. But the activist oftentimes critiques the normal Christian and says, look, if you think what it means to follow Jesus is you come to church once a week, you give a tenth of your offering, and you, you, know, you try to keep personal sin away from your life, he's like, that's not it. That's not the end of the game, because he understood this idea of what God wants with the nations. He wants just, he wants them ruled justly. So activism, it's not only social reform, it can also be actively confronting error and evil in terms of ideas that are out there. Um, Francis Schaeffer, many of you might know, know him, he was uh, passed away in the early 80s, wrote a, he was an author, kind of an evangelist, he was an apologist, a, a critical kind of cultural thinker of the uh, 70s especially. His work is still in print to this day. His, his son Frankie Schaefer, echoing a lot of his dad's teaching, because his dad was all about uh, integrating our faith into the arts and into culture and into the economy, everything, full integration. Frankie Schaefer said this, he said, sometimes truth equals confrontation. Truth equals, because what happens when the truth meets a lie? That's confrontation. And so he said, we have to be willing to, to challenge and answer the enemies of truth. Um, and he says, this is by nature a confrontational way of living. These are, these are his words. Um, he says, those who wish to join the ecumenism of orthodoxy, uh, ecumenism means like all Christians, regardless of your denomination, sort of banding together. Like, let's all believers, whether you're Lutheran, Catholic, Presbyterian, Assembly, whatever, um, let's, let's all see ourselves as one movement and try to make an influence in culture. He says, uh, those who wish to see the, to, to join the ecumenism of orthodoxy cannot be a silent majority. He says, we must be aggressive, feisty, dig in your heels, kick and scream bunch. We must work twice as hard because we are fewer. Now, if your spiritual pathway is like caregiving, you're probably like, oh, that sounds horrible. If, you, if this is your pathway, though, you're, you're probably, like your blood's kind of boiling. You're going, yeah, that's awesome. Let's, let's do it. See, the problem is that some of us, rather than being willing to lean into this particular pathway of the activist, we tend to think of Christianity as only soft, only is the key word, only nice, only polite. Francis Schaeffer, who I mentioned earlier, he wrote this um, in his book about Christianity and culture and stuff. He said, so often people think, Christ think Christianity is only something soft, only a kind of gooey love that loves evil equally with good. This is not the biblical position. He says the holiness of God, remember God's, God's uh, throne. What's at the foundation of it? <laughs> Justice, righteousness. The holiness of God is to be exhibited simultaneously, he says, with love. So let me bring up some of the temptations, okay? These, these are some of the good pieces, but th there are challenges. Each one of these pathways, we've said each week we're going to say, if this is your pathway, you need to be on guard, for some uh, imbalances, extremes, whatever it might be. Let me just give you a couple temptations of the activist. The first one is becoming judgmental. Um, activists <clears throat> rightly think, okay, the holier I get, the more I'm going to hate sin. True? True. Absolutely. Where they go wrong is where they think, well, you know, the holier I get, the less I'm going to be able to tolerate sinners. <laughs> I can't be around you because I'm really holy. That's, do you see the jump? Do you see the leap? Those are very different things there. Hatred for sin can become hatred for people. If activists are tired, if they're spiritually depleted, if they're worn out, 
that can very easily happen. You know, I, if you've ever read any of the Christian classics, like, like the spiritual classics, the ones, you, you know, that talk about becoming more mature and being discipled and growing in your faith, one thing that they are always consistent about is that the more mature you get, uh, the more hyper-aware you become of your own brokenness, your own sin, and therefore, the more compassion you have for the people around you who are the sinner, whatever it might be. So spiritual maturity for the activist, if they're becoming spiritually mature, won't turn into judgmentalism if they're really becoming more spiritually mature. It'll actually develop into a greater softness and kindness for the people they're trying to reach who are on the other side of the picket line or whatever it might be, a deeper compassion and love for them because they know, but for the grace of God, <laughs> there go I, right? Um, a second danger is elitism and resentment. Because the activist is, um, I think you could say like fed by confrontation. Like they oftentimes, yeah, that they, they enjoy it. Not in a, again, in a healthy way enjoy it. Um, they don't mind the, confronta the confrontation. They sometimes don't understand why other people are fearful. I, I was just talking to um, Robin and the band before the service, and, and she was mentioning a uh, mutual friend of ours who was a total activist, I mean, big time. And she said, oh yeah, I went with her to this, to this event. It was a pro-life event. And she said, and like, she's just like, she, she came alive. And she said, like, I'm, I love the event. She's like, but it was harder for me. Like, it, it, was, it was sort of difficult for me to, um, you know, think, gosh, what if there's a fight? What if, you know, this sort of thing breaks out and that sort of thing. Um, but even, even, even the thought of, say, picketing or face-to-face or -face evangelism freaks some people out, understandably. So, man, I've, I've never done it before. What must that be like? What would you even do? And so the activist needs to realize a couple things. One is that um, they can be tempted into thinking themselves as sort of, well, I'm an, I'm an uber-Christian because <laughs> I'm not scared by that sort of thing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really loved by God probably because I'm doing more work than these other people are. One of the goals in this series, one of the learnings that I was hoping would come out is that we would develop a greater um, compassion and tolerance, and more than tolerance, that's not the right word, um, embracing of other Christians having different pathways that early on we would have said, like, that's just stupid. <laughs> but now we go, oh, no, it's a spiritual pathway. So I need to not just tolerate, I need to, I need to celebrate the fact that God has made this diversity of gifts within the body of Christ. Another uh, danger is um, preoccupation with the activity, it might be the statistics or whatever, um, and the lack of soul rest. Um, think about, a, ever seen a young child and they're trying to like untie a knot and, and, it, and it's not working and so they just do it harder and they do it faster and it just makes more of a mess, you know what I mean by that? It's, it's just making it more difficult, just trying harder makes the situation worse. Without rest, an activist can adopt a really self-defeating uh, motivation. They can fall into anger, hatred, and they might, you know, baptize and say, well, I hate the idea, I hate evil. Uh, do you have an attitude or a spirit that's just sort of like a curmudgeon, just sort of angry, bitter, Sometimes that's the result of an activist not stepping into rest, soul rest at times, because it's hard for them. They come alive when they're out there. So the thought of you know, doing something like that a contemplative would do or whatever, what are you talking about? How, how could I do that? Well, it's needed in people's lives. We see Jesus constantly. Jesus confronts, doesn't he? Jesus confronts oftentimes, but what do we always see him do? He's very intentionally moving into places of deep soul rest so that he can go back out. So it's, I, I've just seen many um, activists become deeply disillusioned. You know, their campaign fails or something doesn't work. Uh, what they were trying to achieve, you know, they don't, it, it doesn't happen. And they're deeply disillusioned. And so I think the word to the activist is you do the work and leave the results, the consequences to God. Let him be in charge of that. Um, 
The book of uh, Habakkuk is one that I think about a lot. Habakkuk, very much uh, concerned that, that, that God's not moving, God's not active, and he has this prayer where he says that to God, like, why aren't you, you know, there's injustice, all this stuff happens, and, and, and God corrects him by saying, I'm working behind the scenes. <laughs> there's a whole other world going on that you don't have access to, I promise, I'm working there. And that's what the activist needs to wrap his or her mind around. God's active behind the scenes, even when it doesn't seem like, but I did this and that didn't happen. Leave the consequences to God. Think about uh, the the illustration of a three-legged stool. If the activist only has um, sincerity, that's important, isn't it? And effort, that's important. (laughs) Those two things can't You can't sit on a stool with just two legs. You have to have sincerity, you have to have effort, but you also have to have a thoughtful prayer life. So if if, if you're an activist, let me me encourage you for your sake and for the sake of the church, lean into, develop a thoughtful prayer life. There there are so many ways to, intercessory prayer is, is huge for the activist. I know one activist who would say this, they said, I, um, when I read my Bible, when I'm you know, gauging in times of prayer, intercessory prayer, for us, he says, um, I, will, I will open the newspaper, so I'll kind of the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other, because I'm praying about the things going on in the world, and I'm asking God, God, bring something to my mind. Is there something here maybe that I can, maybe it's just you know, praying about, but maybe you want me to do something about, draw things to my attention, but I'm praying for them. I'm not just going to run out and act. I'm going to carefully pray. And this, this prayer, it is a critical part for the activist because remember, the activist by nature, drawn into controversy. <laughs> That's when they feel alive. The temptation is to stay there and never come out of that fight, so to speak. But if they are prayer deficient, uh, they are going to get frustrated because oh, the rest of the church, they're all apathetic. They just don't care enough. They don't get it. Uh, they're selfish, that whatever. And this deep resentment will start to build for that person. As I mentioned, uh, Pastor Carrie Stewart, she has the activist uh, role. One thing that really balances her out, I, was, I, was, I, I don't think I'm revealing anything weird. I'm sure she would tell you this, but she, she did the assessment on all nine of these. And the caregiver one was the second. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. That probably allows her to, I'm the activist, but that allows that, that any sort of a rough edge to be blunted because she, she loves to care for people too. So even right there you think about, look at how these pathways intersect, you know what I mean, with each other. But I was asking her, I said, so like, how did, I said, like, like, were you always this pathway or did it develop? And she said, you know, my dad was a pastor. She grew up in a pastor's home and it was a small church and she said, we would have missionaries come in a lot and they would stay at our house. You know, we didn't have the money to put them up in a hotel, and so these missionaries would stay in our house. And she said, what I remember more than anything else is the missionaries who cared for the, the needy, the children, the orphans, uh, those sorts. And she said, sometimes they would show us pictures. She said, I can still see him. I can still see that picture in my, to this day, I, I remember those pictures in my head. They were imprinted on me. She said they were planted in me. And so I asked her some questions. I said, okay, um, is your husband an activist? She's like, opposite, total opposite, not at all. And I said, talk to me a little bit about learnings you've had over the years as a result of being high on the activist and being married to someone who's, who's not. That's really low for them. And uh, I said, like, what's his? And she said, oh, he's a naturalist. And I'm like, where's that unused? She goes, zero, nothing. I'm like, wow, okay, this is cool. Um, and so I just said, like, what are some learnings you've had? And these are just some of the random things she said to me. She said, I realize that I can run over people sometimes. Um, I'm easily frustrated. Um, she said, God has given me a voice, but the voice of the activist, she said, it's loud. And what she means by that is not literal volume. She means intensity. And she said, I have to realize when I'm talking to someone who's not, my intensity level can be overwhelming to them. Um, she, she talked about the idea of praying to be wise to know when to speak and when not to. And, and she referenced, remember Jesus' words? He says, don't, don't cast your pearls before swine because they might turn on you and devour you, which is an interesting picture not to, to totally unwrap it. But this idea of sometimes it's, it's not wise to, like the book of Proverbs says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. 
It's just time for me to be quiet. She said, so I'm real prayerful on, because like she said, I want to speak all the time. (laughs) I would love to, but maturity has tempered me and said, no, there's a time to just be quiet. Um, She said, it's easy for me to get frustrated at the lack of response. I have to understand when I deliver information to someone, like, you know that there are this many people who are being, you know, taken advantage of whatever she's, and the person just has this look like, huh. She goes, my immediate response is like, aren't you outraged by that? Like, how can you say that? She said, I have to realize people process differently. Some people are like, man, they just, they need to mull that over for a while. Um, it's also new information to them. She said, it, this information has been sitting with me for years, maybe months. It might be new to them. Um, she talked about the importance of, of prayer. She said, they need to be educated. Oftentimes, activists can react. And she said, I have to realize what I want my response, or what I want to do, and what I ought to do are different questions. <laughs> and I have to parse the difference between those two. I have to temper myself. Um, what are some other things? She talked about, oh, this was kind of an interesting one. Um, she said, movement helps me think. She says, um, as an activist, when I start thinking about this stuff, she said, my energy level, I mean, literally, I can feel it in my body. And it's just, it's like at the surface, and I'm, 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 almost jumpy, just like tons of energy. She said, if I go on a walk, I'm getting out that energy and allows me to be more clear thinking about how should I respond in this situation? What do I need to do? What needs to be the church's response? Instead of this knee-jerk reaction that has a ton of energy behind it and so can be misguided in some ways. She talked about pitfalls and she said, you know, there's dangers of broken relationships when you're an activist because truth is so important. You're, You're willing to say anything you know, to confront the uh, lies. But she said, activists hold influence. I know that God has given activists influence. And because, again, you know, we tend to be loud voice, um, if I learn to manage that, it's, it's, like a, it's like a horse that's been broken, you know what I mean by that, as opposed to a wild horse. Wild horse is just dangerous. <laughs> a broken horse, all the strength is there. Same amount of strength. But it's controlled. It's guided it's an effective resource and tool. Activists, you see, are actually spiritually nourished by the battle, which is, again, it's not a bad thing. Remember Jesus' words? He said this. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. That's that activist mindset. That's what nourishes me. That's what feeds me, is doing what I know I'm called to do. And like it or not, a lot of Jesus' work, it involved confrontation. But the way we go about it um, is so important. Let me, let me read for you some words by Francis Schaeffer, and I, I, I love this. I feel like he just nailed it. If there's nothing you hear as the activist, hear this tonight. Francis Schaeffer said this in his book called The Mark of the Christian. He said, there is only one kind of person who can fight the Lord's battle in anywhere near a proper way. Oh, that's important, isn't it? Fighting the Lord's battle in a proper way. He says, and that is the man who is by nature unbelligerent. Right? Of course, belligerent is where like, you know, you want to start a battle, you're confrontational, you, you love wars. He says, a belligerent man tends to do it because he's belligerent. <laughs> Any know those people? At least it looks that way, he says. The world must observe that when we must differ with each other as true Christians, we do it not because we love the smell of blood, not because we love the smell of the arena or the smell of the bullfight, but because we must for God's sake. Isn't that beautiful? It's almost like the phrase that comes to mind is, uh, um, oh, it just came to mind and it left. That was pretty quick. Um, what's, what's, what's the word when you, reluctant, a reluctant activist, that, that's the phrase that came to mind when I was reading Schaefer's idea here, a person who's a reluctant activist, and I thought, oh, I like that, because that, then the person's not belligerent, that's not what they're pursuing. <clears throat> Let me read, how do, I don't know how many of you know the name John Woolman, lived in the 17th, uh, the 18th century, the 1700s, and he, was, he, he worked for American abolition, the abolition of slavery. He was also kind of a Christian mystic, 
talked about a lot of these experiences of God coming to him and, and that sort of thing. Let me read this. This is from a book called 131 Christians Everyone Should Know. I don't know why it's 131. He probably just ran out of people. But um, <clears throat> he, writes, he, he writes this about, about Woolman, who was an activist. Um, he says he's remembered as one of America's first abolitionists and most profound mystics. Woolman was born into a devout Quaker family who lived in a small New Jersey Quaker village. Spiritual experiences came very uh, early for him. He says, you know, when he was seven years old, he became acquainted with the voice of God and believed that he was being called to, to end some injustice by some of these. Um, and he, he said, God told him that he was to care for all people the same, okay? And he says this, this new application was soon tested when his employer asked him to write a bill of sale for a black woman, a black female, a slave. Woolman objected, telling the employer that he believed slave keeping to be a practice inconsistent with the Christian religion. Since he is also duty-bound to honor his master, he did what he was told but his conscience remained uneasy. And the next time he was asked to write a slave bill of sale, he flatly refused. Desiring more independence, he took up a, another job of tailoring because he felt that he was called to public ministry and he deliberately chose a, a career which wouldn't require a whole lot of time. Within a few years, his business was booming and when he had enough money that he felt like he was quite comfortable and he said, I noticed within me a desire for more. <laughs> more money. He said, so I started turning people away and, and telling them, go to that tailor, he's actually better, as a way of sort of almost an ascetic response. By this time, he was around age 36, he was married. He had also taken two important journeys through the American South, which convinced him all the more that slavery was, quote, a dark gloominess hanging over the land. And he predicted, quote, in future consequence will be grievous to posterity, meaning, man, your posterity is going to go, how could we have done that? That's so awful. In 1754 and 1762, he published the first and second parts of a book titled Some Considerations on the Keeping of Negroes was the title of this book, in which he argued for the connection between Christianity and freedom. The idea that men and women are created equal in the image of God leads directly to, and this is his quote, quote, an idea of general brotherhood and dispensation easy to be touched with the feelings of another's afflictions. Meaning, this is my brother. I should be so touched by their afflictions that it, it feels like my own, and that's what was motivating him. His concern about the extreme oppression of many slaves also translated into concern for Native Americans. He visited Indian villages on the Pennsylvania frontier, supported the Moravian missionary attempts. He sought to curtail the sale of rum to the Indians and worked for a more just Indian land policy. Woolman maintained a strict manner of life, traveling by foot when possible. He wore undyed garments because he was told that dyes were produced by slave labor and generally abstained from the use of any product connected with the slave trade. Eventually, he refused hospitality in homes of slave owners <clears throat> because he recognized that the luxury the family enjoyed was due to slavery. His views on slavery were not only unusual for whites in his day, but even unusual among his fellow Quakers. He is for a large reason why American Quakers abandoned slaveholding voluntarily within 25 years of his death. His method of, this is interesting, moral persuasion was backed up by his consistent practice. So his life and what he was fighting for were the same message. In 1758, for example, he preached a sermon against slavery in a rural community between Philadelphia and Baltimore. He was then taken to a home of Thomas Woodward for dinner when Woolman determined that the, the black servants were actually slaves. He quietly slipped out of the house without saying a word. The owner's conscience was so troubled the next morning he vowed to liberate his slaves. 1772, Woolman visited England to preach and characteristically he traveled by steerage as a testimony against the extreme social class distinction. The relatively wealthy and proud London Quakers were at first cool to this rustic New Jersey preacher, but his sincerity, remember the legs of the stool? 
It says his sincerity and spiritual maturity eventually won them over. Within a few months upon his arrival, he died. At age 52, he was buried in England. And this man was responsible largely for the abolition of slavery in our nation, in our country. And he went about it in this slow, methodical, careful way, deeply impassioned by the matters of justice that God's throne, the foundation of it, it's justice. It's righteousness. And what he's calling me to had better look like that as well. Gary Thomas, in, in his book, Spiritual Pathways, says this, and I'll end with this quote. He says, writers, preachers, politicians, academics, artists, and homemakers can all be activists. Faithful in their own sphere to stand up for truth. And then he pointed to Francis Schaeffer, who I mentioned earlier. He says, Schaeffer argues that Christians, while they should be open to new ideas, they should seek to positively mold events in the areas of education, ideology, the electoral process, national agenda, protest, the media, waywardness in the church, strengthening of the family, beginning with their own. He says, in so doing, Christian activism can move beyond protest, I mean, not just calling things out and saying, that's junk, but also provide a positive alternative. Instead of just writing letters to Congress, Christians can run for Congress. Instead of merely protesting immorality in entertainment, Christians can become part of the entertainment industry, he says. And so this is my challenge for us. This week, I, I would ask you, to dedicate some time in prayer, and maybe it's with the newspaper open, maybe it's that idea, I don't know what it is, but just say, God, would you give me a mountain to climb? Would you give me a hill to tackle? Something that would engage me, something that's maybe, maybe, maybe even a little beyond me, like it kind of freaks me out because I need you to be there. That's okay, that's good, that's growth. And see if he would lay something on your heart. Maybe it's writing a letter, who knows? But would you seek God and see if he would have you do something in this activist pathway and see what happens to your faith. See if it grows.